This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the night sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Hawke's Bay Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Mercury is at superior conjunction at the beginning of August, Following conjunction, Mercury becomes an evening object, setting after the Sun. On the 19th, Mercury passes Mars from our line of sight. At 6.45 p.m. that evening, with the Sun 9 degrees below the horizon, Mercury at magnitude minus 0.5 will be 6 degrees above the horizon, only 9 arc minutes above Mars. By the end of August, Mercury sets two hours after the Sun, giving a brief opportunity to see the planet in the early evening. At 6.50 p.m., the end of nautical twilight, the planet will be 11 degrees above the horizon. Venus moves further up into the evening sky during August, setting over three hours after the sun by the 31st, making it a brilliant early evening object to the north of west. The evening of August 11th will see the crescent moon some six degrees below Venus. Mars is also an evening object, but falls further behind Venus and gets closer to the sun during August. By the end of the month, it sets only one hour after the sun, making it a difficult object for observing. The moon, as a very thin crescent, only 3% lit, will be 6 degrees to the right of Mars, early evening on the 10th. Jupiter is at opposition on the 22nd of August, and in the sky all night. It will be at its brightest in the second half of the month. The planet, moving to the west in a retrograde sense, crosses from Aquarius to Capricornus on the 19th. Early evening on August 22nd, two days after opposition, the full moon will be three and a half degrees to the right of Jupiter. They gradually get further apart during the rest of the night. Saturn was at opposition at the beginning of August, on on the 2nd in fact, so like Jupiter, it is visible most of the night. The moon passes Saturn on the 21st. They are closest at the middle of the day, so they will be separating by the time they rise for New Zealand. A newly discovered type of stardust is helping scientists reveal what ingredients went into the formation of our solar system more than 4.5 billion years ago. The tiny mineral grains from meteorites are at the center of just-published findings led by Kiwi and U.S. scientists challenging existing models of solar system formation at the chemical level. The research, featured in the major journal Science Advances, also demonstrates the complexity of what are called primitive meteorites, such as the well-known and studied Allende meteorite, which fell to Earth in Mexico in February of 1969. Primitive meteorites are rare because they are the bits and pieces left flying around that haven't been incorporated into planets, said the study's co-author, Dr. Bruce Charlier of Victoria University. So they hold clues about some of these very early processes. Charlier said these stellar remnants were made up of a number of different components that had different histories and were formed under different conditions. Some of the components were actually splashes of melt formed during impacts of asteroids. 
but the very oldest components in the mix were called calcium-aluminium inclusions, CAIs. It is widely thought these were condensed from a high-temperature gas as the sun was forming, Charlier said. This makes them very different from minerals you might find in an igneous rock on Earth, which crystallized from a magma. In their paper, Charlier and his colleagues at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, and the University of Chicago describe evidence of pre-solar grains found within the CAIs themselves. This showed the process was more complex than previously thought. Research into CAIs and meteorite composition is highly technical and detailed work requiring specialist scientific instruments. Charlier and his team have been splitting the CAIs into even smaller components, or the astronomical equivalent of the Russian Matryoshka stacking dolls. They deploy a chemical process called step leaching to incrementally dissolve the components of the CAIs in different strengths of acids. Then study the different fractions using a thermal ionization mass spectrometer. Step leaching is a little bit of a blunt instrument because you're not entirely sure what exactly it is you're destroying at each step, he said. But the nub of what we found is, once you have stripped away 99% of the common components within the CAIs, what we are left with is something highly exotic that we weren't expecting. Those highly resistant materials are, we think, tiny pre-solar grains predating our solar system because when you measure their isotopic and chemical composition on the mass spectrometer, they are very, very different to anything else you find. Many carried unusually high amounts of strontium-84, SR-84, which was a relatively rare light isotope of the element strontium. Strontium-84 is part of a family of isotopes produced by a nucleosynthetic process named the P-process, which remains mysterious, said co-author and Caltech geochemist, Associate Professor Francois Tizot. Our results point to the survival of grains possibly containing pure strontium-84. This is exciting, as the physical identification of such grains would provide a unique chance to learn more about the P-process. The grains carrying this signature, the researchers concluded, must have formed prior to the birth of the solar system and survived that cataclysmic process during which stellar grains were heated to extremely high temperatures, vaporized, and then condensed into solid materials. Given the relative abundance of strontium-84, the discovery pointed to the likely existence in meteorites of nanometer-sized grains containing almost pure strontium-84 that were formed during a rare nucleosynthetic process before the formation of the solar system itself. The nature of these grains was still a mystery, as only their isotopic composition in strontium revealed their existence. But the high levels of SR84 favored a scenario in which Earth accreted with more water and volatile elements, which were subsequently lost within the first few million years after their formation. The scientists estimated the pre-solar grains were aged somewhere between 4.567 billion years old when the solar system was formed and 13.8 billion years old about the time of the Big Bang and represented the vestiges of material left over from the birth of the solar system. Charlier's research was being supported by a large Marsden Fund grant. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. Planet formation is notoriously difficult to study. Not only does the process take millions of years, making it impossible to observe in real time, there are myriad factors that play into it, making it difficult to distinguish cause and effect. 
What we do know is that planets form from features known as protoplanetary disks, which are made up of gas and dust surrounding young stars. And now a team using ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, have found a star system that has a protoplanetary disk and enough variability to help them nail down some details of how exactly the process of planet formation works. The research is described in two new papers in the Astrophysical Journal. They describe the star system Elias 227, which is located about 400 light years from Earth in Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. It has attracted the attention of astronomers for the last five years, first being studied in 2016 when it, was revealed, when it revealed a pinwheel of dust surrounding the star. Usually, protoplanetary disks don't take the shape of a pinwheel, which is more commonly found in galactic formations such as the Pinwheel Galaxy. Researchers speculated that the two pinwheel arms visible around the star were caused by gravitational instabilities, which could also contribute to planetary formation processes. But they needed further data to, prefer, to prove their idea. That is where the new papers come in. Data that was collected over the last five years proved the existence of gravitational instabilities, but also found a few things that weren't caught in the first round of data. It appears there may have been more material accreting to the disk itself, causing more gravitational chaos. More surprisingly, some parts of the protoplanetary disk were much taller than others. This type of vertical asymmetry had never been observed before in a protoplanetary disk and allowed the researchers to take a step forward in one of the computational hurdles that blocked the path to fully understanding planetary formation. Computational members of the team had predicted that gravitational instabilities might cause the huge pillars of matter that appear to tower over the disk. Those towers also open up the possibility of calculating the actual quantity of material present in the disk itself, a measurement that has eluded planetary scientists so far. Knowing the amount of mass present in planet-forming disks allows us to determine the amount of material available for the formation of planetary systems and to better understand the process by which they form, said Venedetta Veronese, lead author of one of the papers and a graduate student at the University of Milan. Even with the possibility of finally being able to calculate a protoplanetary disk size, there is still a lot of work to be done to fully flesh out the entire planetary formation process. Luckily, there are plenty more star systems out there to study, and some of them undoubtedly have planets at every stage of that formation process. With tools like ALMA, scientists will continue searching for them and help draw an even more complete picture of where planets come from. Well, as we mentioned in the last story, planetary formation is a complicated, multi-layered process. Even with the influx of data on exoplanets, there are still only two known planets that are not yet fully formed. Known as PDS-70b and PDS-70c, the two planets which were originally found by the Very Large Telescope are some of the best objects we have to flesh out our planetary formation models. And now, one of them has been confirmed to have a moon-forming disk around it. That additional insight came from observations conducted by ALMA. Astronomers had long predicted that planet PDS-70c was surrounded by such a disk, but with the images they had captured previously, they were unable to confirm its existence. Now it has been physically confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt. Moon formation is even less well understood than planetary formation at this point. Even the origins of our own moon are still up for debate. But the PDS-70C discovery has the potential to illuminate the creation of at least one as we are watching. 
In fact, there is enough material in the disk to create three moons the size of our own around the Jupiter-like planet. The moon formation process also plays a key part in planetary formation, with circumplanetary disks that can form moons also influencing the creation of the planet itself. Watching that disk evolve will help scientists with their models of both moon and planetary formation. That evolution is sure to take millions of years, but so far PDS-70C is the only known planet with any type of circumplanetary disk. The same data set confirming its existence showed that its Saturn-like twin, PDS-70B, does not have a disk that some scientists had previously suggested. Others might be found with more powerful telescopes, but until then, this system is the best we have. Given its uniqueness, the PDS-70 system will remain a focal point of plenty of observational firepower. No longer part of any stellar system, rogue planets drift aimlessly through space after the tumultuous early stages of planet formation eject them. Now, using NASA's Kepler telescope, astronomers have announced four new Earth-mass outcast planet candidates. When a star or planet passes in front of a distant star, it acts like a magnifying lens to temporarily brighten the background star, an effect known as microlensing. Since rogue planets don't have the luxury of a host star to reveal their presence, they are best detected via microlensing. The smaller the lens, the shorter the microlensing event. Earth-mass planets magnify background stars for a couple of hours at most, which makes these microlensing episodes hard to find. In the first search for rogue planets using a space-based observatory, a team led by Ian MacDonald, now at the Open University in the UK, used data from a two-month span of the rejuvenated Kepler mission, dubbed K2, to scavenge for microlensing events. K2 was not meant to look at the dense galactic bulge, so the team had to develop new methods to sift through the data. They found 27 microlensing events, five of them brand new. Four of these new events have the shortest duration of all their findings, lasting a little over an hour at most and hinting at the presence of Earth-mass rogue planets. The team presented their results in the July monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Even though planets cause many microlensing events, most of these worlds are bound to a star. In fact, one of the newly discovered events shows the signature of a bound planet. Previously, astronomers knew of only five super short-lived microlensing event episodes thought to be caused by low-mass rogue planets. McDonald's team has almost doubled that number. Pirzimek Moroz from the California Institute of Technology, a fellow rogue planet hunter, isn't convinced that all of these planets are actually drifters. Figuring out whether these objects are indeed free-floating or not is more tricky, he says. It's possible, he adds, that some of these planets might be orbiting far from their host star while remaining gravitationally bound. Their microlensing signature would look nearly identical to the signature expected from free-floating planets. While there's always a chance that the four new microlensing events could indicate something less interesting, such as bound planets or stellar flares, the fact that they lasted such a short time suggests that free-floating planets are a serious contender. Ground-based observations are needed to confirm these events, but these findings present exciting evidence that an Earth-mass population of rogue planets might wander our galaxy. The new results from Kepler confirm our earlier studies based on ground-based Ogle observations so that such low-mass, Earth-mass, free-floating or widely-orbiting planets are quite common in the Milky Way, says Moros. 
If these outcast Earths are truly typical in our galactic neighborhood, future telescopes like Euclid and Nancy Grace Roman will be able to detect their signals easily. Right, we'll just take a break here and mention our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. The planetarium is located on Chambers Street on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. The planetarium is open to the general public on Sunday evenings from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. The main show starts at about 7.15. No bookings are required, so just come on down. Uh, entry fees are $6 for students and seniors, $10 for adults, and $25 for a family of up to six. Suitable for all ages, so if you're interested in learning more about what's up in the night sky, why not come down and pay us a visit the Holt Planetarium in Napier. You can get more information by giving us a call, 8344-345, sending us an email, or having a look on our website. That's the Holt Planetarium on Chambers Street in Napier. About 97% of all stars in our universe are destined to end their lives as white dwarf stars, which represents the final stage in their evolution. Like neutron stars, white dwarfs form after stars have exhausted their nuclear fuel and undergo gravitational collapse, shedding their outer layers to become supercompact stellar remnants. This will be the fate of our own sun billions of years from now, which will swell up to become a red giant before losing its outer layers. Unlike neutron stars, which result from more massive stars, white dwarfs were once about eight times the mass of our sun or lighter. For scientists, the density and gravitational force of these objects is an opportunity to study the laws of physics under some of the most extreme conditions imaginable. According to new research led by Ilaria Kayazo, the Sherman Fairchild Postdoc Scholar Research Associate in Theoretical Astrophysics at Caltech, wow, one such object has been found that is both the smallest and most massive white dwarf ever seen. This white dwarf, known as, and you're going to love this, ZTF J190132.9 plus 145808.7. Okay, it's located about 130 light years from Earth and is estimated to be 1.3 times as massive as our Sun. However, this white dwarf has a stellar radius of about 1,810 kilometers, slightly larger than the Moon, which is 1,737 kilometers, which makes it the smallest and most massive white dwarf ever observed. As Chiazzo mentioned, explained in a recent press statement from the W.M. Keck Observatory, it may seem counterintuitive, but smaller white dwarfs happen to be more massive. This is due to the fact that white dwarfs lack the nuclear burning that keep up normal stars against their own self-gravity, and their size is instead regulated by quantum mechanics. This white dwarf also has an extreme magnetic field, ranging from 600 to 900 megagauss over its entire surface, or roughly 1 billion times stronger than our sun's. This magnetic field has one of the fastest rotational periods ever observed in an isolated white dwarf, whipping around the star's axis once every 6.94 minutes. What's more, the study of this white dwarf is already offering astronomers insight into how binary systems end their lives. This curious white dwarf was originally discovered by Kevin Burge, a postdoc scholar at Caltech and a co-author of the recent study. Based on all sky images taken by the Zwicky Transient Facility, the ZTF, thus giving it its name, at Caltech's Palomar Observatory, combined with data 
obtained by Issa's Gaia Observatory, it became clear that the white dwarf was also very massive and had a rapid rotation. Further characterizations were made using the 200-inch Hale Telescope at Palomar, the WM Keck Observatory, the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, PANSTARS, and NASA's Neil Garrell's Swift Observatory. Whereas spectra obtained by Keck's low-resolution imaging spectrometer, ELRIS, revealed signatures of a powerful magnetic field, ultraviolet data from Swift helped constrain the size and mass of the white dwarf. Between its strong magnetic field and seven-minute rotational period, Kayasa and her colleagues began to think that ZTF was the result of two smaller white dwarfs coalescing into one. Roughly 50% of the stars in the observable universe are binary systems consisting of two stellar companions that orbit one another. If these stars are less than eight solar masses each, they will evolve into white dwarfs that eventually merge to form a more massive variant. This process boosts the magnetic field of the resulting white dwarf and speeds up its rotation compared to that of its progenitors. It would also explain how ZTF J1901 plus 1458 manages to concentrate such a considerable mass into a volume slightly more than that of the moon. In addition, said Caso, they theorize that the remnant could be massive enough to evolve into a neutron star at some point. We caught this very interesting object that wasn't quite massive enough to explode. We are truly probing how massive a white dwarf can be. This is highly speculative, but it's possible that the white dwarf is massive enough to further collapse into a neutron star. It is so massive and dense that in its core, electrons are being captured by protons and nuclei to form neutrons. Because the pressure from electrons pushes against the force of gravity, keeping the star intact, the core collapses when a large enough number of electrons are removed. If their hypothesis is correct, it may mean that a significant portion of other neutron stars in our galaxy did not start their lives as massive stars, but instead evolved from smaller binary stars. The newfound object's close proximity to Earth, roughly 130 light-years, and the fact that it is relatively young, 100 million years old or so, are indications that similar objects could be common in our galaxy. In the future, Kaiazo and her colleagues hope to use the ZTF facility to find more white dwarfs like ZTF J1901 plus 1458, as well as more in general. With a census of white dwarfs, scientists will be able to study the population as a whole and determine how many were the result of massive stars experiencing a supernova and how many were the result of binary companions merging near the end of their lives. There are so many questions to address, such as what is the rate of white dwarf mergers in the galaxy and is it enough to explain the number of type 1a supernova, she said. How is a magnetic field generated in these powerful events, and why is there such diversity in magnetic field strengths among the white dwarfs? Finding a large population of white dwarfs born from mergers will help us answer all these questions and more. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. If it weren't for an enormous halo of dark matter enveloping our galaxy, the spin rate of our central bar should stay pretty constant. But researchers have recently inferred that it has slowed down by almost 25% since its formation, a clear sign of the presence of dark matter. How do you measure the spin rate of something that takes millions of years to make a single revolution? The answer is chemistry, stellar chemistry. Stars near the center of the galaxy are much richer in metals, which is the word astronomers use to donate any element heavier than helium. 
Stars on the outskirts, however, are much more lacking in metals. Therefore, if you happen to come across a group of stars that is exceptionally rich in metals, then it most likely wandered away from the center of the galaxy. That's the case for the Hercules stream, a large group of stars observed with the Gaia satellite. The Hercules stream is a metal-rich clump of stars, but sits relatively far from the galactic center. There's something else intriguing about the, Her- about the Hercules stream. It lo- it's locked in a gravitational dance with the central bar of the Milky Way. Much like the Trojan asteroids of the solar system lead and follow Jupiter in its orbit around the sun, the Hercules stream is captured by a unique combination of gravitational forces. As the central bar sweeps around, so does the Hercules stream. So the Hercules stream follows the motion of the central bar, and the stars of the Hercules stream have migrated outwards to their present position over the past few billion years. The only way for the Hercules stream to move outwards is for the central bar to be slowing down. As the spin rate of the bar drops, the Hercules stream has to move outward to match the period. Putting it all together, a team of astronomers estimates that the spin rate of the bar has dropped by 24% since the formation of the Milky Way, as published in a new study. Co-author Dr. Ralph Schoenrich from UCL Millard Space Science Laboratory said, Astrophysicists have long suspected that the spinning bar at the center of our galaxy is slowing down, but we have found the first evidence of this happening. The counterweight slowing the spin must be dark matter. Until now, we have only been able to infer dark matter by mapping the gravitational potential of galaxies and subtracting the contribution from visible matter. Our research provides a new type of measurement of dark matter, not of its gravitational energy, but of its inertial mass, the dynamical response, which slows the bar's spin. Co-author and PhD student Rinpei Chiba from the University of Oxford said, Our finding offers a fascinating perspective for constraining the nature of dark matter, as different models will change this inertial pull on the galactic bar. Well, that's going to do it for our program this month. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium. My name is Gary Sparks, and thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.